This episode is brought to you by Maui Nui Venison, a mission-based food company bringing the healthiest meat on the planet directly to your door. I have strived over the years to cultivate a deeper connection with the food that fuels myself and my family, balancing nutritional value and ethics that align with our values. This process has led me to harmonize with nature as much as possible. Maui Nui Venison brings this process to fruition. Not only does this company provide the most nutrient-dense meat available, this is the only stress-free, 100% wild-harvested red meat on the market, an operation that is truly one of its kind, actively managing Maui's invasive axis deer populations, helping to restore balance to vulnerable ecosystems and communities in Hawaii. Maui Nui seeks to restore balance, not eradicate or farm these animals. Managing populations means only a limited number of memberships are available. Get yours while you can. Go to MauiNuiVenison.com slash mindful to get 20% off your first order. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. I'll apologize up front for the noise in the background. It's cicada season here on the East Coast, so we have some strange background noise going on. It's been a fascinating process watching these little bugs kind of take over the community. Um, So today I have a guest, her name is Rebecca Strong. She is a therapist and a yoga teacher, and she helps folks work through trauma by regulating the nervous system. And uh, I guess really through some talk therapy leading up to tapping into how the brain works and how it regulates our nervous system, and then trying to use that mechanism to our advantage, as opposed to our nervous system kind of getting hijacked by these very elegant systems that we have to help regulate stress. I have to tell you, this conversation took a very unexpected turn. Uh, I did not think going into it that I was going to open up some of my own childhood trauma. And somehow the conversation just uh, eased into that. I, I don't know what it was about Rebecca's message or that it resonated with me the way it did. But... Um, I felt invited to open up, didn't really plan for it. This conversation was yesterday. I gotta tell you, I felt like it has been a very important conversation for me in my life. Since the conversation, which was just yesterday, I've really felt good. It's, it's been interesting to notice how good I felt since airing out some of my some of my stuff that I deal with, some of my suffering. I said some things in the conversation that not only did I not expect to say, they're not things I've shared with many people in my life. I could probably count on two fingers. So 
Um, I gotta say, I got a little vulnerable, didn't expect it, and it turned out to be really valuable for me personally. Um, a little nervous about releasing this conversation because I did get so personal, but I hope that it also resonates with some of the listeners and maybe it could help you when navigating your own journey and kind of managing your own suffering and whatever you may have kind of harbored in the body from your past. That being said, uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I have Rebecca Strong here coming in from Boulder, Colorado. Rebecca, thank you for joining us on the Mindful Movement Podcast. Mm -hmm. Say hello to the audience. Absolutely. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Les. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so, Rebecca, you're a clinical licensed professional counselor, a yes. registered yoga teacher, and an EMDR specialist or therapist. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were put in contact through Laura Brazil, which if the listeners remember, she was on the podcast several months ago. She's an old colleague of mine that now, I guess, runs an organization that really relies on the activity of walking to help um, as like almost a meditation practice or healing practice and a movement practice kind of all lumped up in one and um, looking forward to having her back on the podcast one day, but she, I guess, uh, knew you somehow and thought we should get in touch. And I was kind of excited because I've heard about EMDR and I'm very curious and I've been doing all kinds of weird stuff with my eyes over the last year or so. Uh -huh. And, um, I'm, I guess I've just dipped my toe into trying to interact with my nervous system through my mm. eyes. Mm. So I'm looking to learn more and hoping you could shed some light and give us some context around those ideas. But uh, I guess first, how'd you even get into this? Sure. Well, um, I think as a in my early 20s, I traveled overseas. I lived about four years overseas and I got really curious about people and how people from different cultures, how we were the same and how we were different. And so human perception became very interesting to me and how we perceive how we perceive circumstances can determine a lot about how we show up or what we do you know can kind of influence behavior um, so i've always been a curious person about nature and people and um, i wanted to understand more about about the about people about the human brain about the the nervous system and i also uh, have been studying yoga. I was given my first yoga mat when I was in my early 20s. And that experience of going from sort of an outwardly focused uh, perception to turn, learning to turn my, my perception toward the inner game and the internal world was such a gateway moment for me of you know, the first time I did child's pose on my own yoga mat, like, wow, I've got my own little, little lily pad here in the <laughs> pond. And, and I can actually turn the light of my own consciousness inward and learning to track the breath was such an anchoring and liberating experience. Like, oh, 
this is a companion. Now she originally, she like immediately, I'm going to refer to the breath as she, <laughs> I think my yoga teacher sort of turned me on to that and it just works for me. It's, um, you know, she, it's like this companion that allows the, my own perception, right. To deepen, um, into what's happening on the inside and what, and, and, and that freedom that became a freedom for me and like an endless source of delight and curiosity, both during the difficult times and the good times. Um, so I think my training in, in experience and yoga later, I wanted to apply sort of the science I was learning of the body, both the physical sciences um, but also the, you know, anatomy, physiology, but also like, what is this connection between the brain, the body and the breath? And when I became a clinician, I, I wanted a more scientific approach to therapy because I, I had experienced myself like years of talk therapy that didn't really gain enough traction for the amount of time I put in. It didn't really get me an ROI, the ROI <laughs> I was looking for. And I thought this, how this, this, there's gotta be a, a, a path towards mental health. And I actually call it mental fitness um, and mental hygiene that that's more science kind of based and, and um, has ways of kind of intending greater results and getting greater results. And when I found EMDR, it kind of bridged the, the, the link between the physical arts of dance. I have a background in embodiment and dance as well as yoga and martial arts. I studied Aikido um, in Japan. So EMDR gives, gives, has given me that bridge between the body and the mind. Cool. Yeah. But there's a couple of things you said there uh, that resonated with me. You referred to your breath as a mm. companion. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I, I spent a lot of time on the mat myself, try to get on the mat every day. And um, Beautiful. it's like this moment where you go from, as I've heard it, like kind of working out to working in. Mm -hmm. this inward thing and that's interesting like there's always this moment where it's like ah we're here again like yes and as if um there is a companion that mm. you're with mm. that mm. was that's a very that that word really resonates with me with mm. that because i don't i've never i guess tried to really articulate the sensation that arises when I close the door behind me and mm. I stand on the mat, I look, I kind of look it up and down, I get in where I want to position. And then it's like, ah, we're here again, mm. time to begin. Yes. And it's like, you have a, even you're by yourself, but you're not, you do have yes. a companion. Yeah. Right. And she's always there. It's like a best friend who's always waiting for, for us to, turn and say hi yeah. like she's like i i'm i'm i've been here all morning <laughs> you're just showing up <laughs> yeah. 
It's right? funny too. It makes me think I just, uh, I've been um, sober for, well, no, I wouldn't say sober, mm -hmm. sober from drinking for yeah. a while. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. So when it was like a hundred days sober, I made this post on Facebook about, you know, whatever came to my mind that day about it. And uh, um, so, you know how Facebook does those like memories. So oh, just yes. yesterday, I guess yesterday was like five years and a hundred days. So I had this, this, uh, this thing come up reminding me of my hundred day post that I did five years earlier. And, um, and it's interesting because I can relate that too. I remember looking at his alcohol as a companion. It was like, ah, oh, my, my friend. Gosh. Oh my gosh. Like, yes. Cause that's the way I would like soothe. Mm -hmm. Like I could be coming home from work and like, I knew like, no matter what kind of day, like I was going to be able to pour a drink and sit with it and have my best friend. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like now it's yes. like, oh, my going inward is, I'm my own best friend and I have this breath as a companion. Yes, yes. Uh, I, lo I love that you said that about, um, thank you for your vulnerability, first of all, to share that memory um, and how you thought of that drink or alcohol, right? And I, it sparked something in my own brain around anxiety and depression, right? So one of the tools that yoga has brought to me as a mental health, as a professional, licensed professional counselors, like the, 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 the title. But when you look at mental health through the lens of the nervous system, we've got these three layers. I actually have this little chart here that comes from um, that originally, um, sorry, the lighting's a little off, but it's, this was, this comes from St. Um, Michael's in Toronto, um, but it's, it's the window of tolerance. So um, Dan Siegel and Pat Ogden originally came up with this chart. I love it because it, to me, it's like the earth rise the first time that the astronauts turned the camera back to the planet. And we were able to see, have a picture of the earth for the first time was that 1967. So it's like, we could see ourselves and there was a bigger context. When we talk about mental health, it's like, what, what is mental health and where are we? Is there a map for mental health? And I, so I find this physical chart where we're talking about the window of tolerance, this is where everything is going well. We're able to actually roll with life's ups and downs. Um, you know, something will come along and sort of spike our nervous system, but we can integrate it and and come back into the zone of, right. of excellence, the so optimal for, zone. I'm sorry, oh, so, so for the listeners that yes. aren't watching this, the yeah. graph that Rebecca's showing kind of shows a I guess a window of like an optimal zone where I guess you can successfully, however you could uh, sub subjectively describe that, um, manage like the ups and downs of our yes. life situation, what we'd call stress or suffering or whatever. And then if you're out of that range too low, it's hypo arousal. So you might get numbness, it says, mm -hmm. or no feelings or lack of energy. So I guess it's some dysregulation or dysfunction of, of this process. And then if it's uh, you know, too high, and you can't manage that stress, you can get emotional overwhelm or panic, anxiety and such. I think we could probably all relate to that. You know, not long ago, or actually it was a while ago, we had um, Justin Sanceri on talking about the polyvagal theory, mm -hmm. which kind of looks like just a different 
way, a, a very similar way to put those ideas on just like a, um, I guess like a parallel uh, scaffolding, if you will, to like map, Yes. you know, how the nervous system is exactly. managing itself, responding to, you yes. know, whatever sensory input that's coming in. Yes, exactly. Yes. Stephen Porges work on the polyvagal theory really opened up this whole world, kind of like stepping onto the yoga mat. It's like, oh, we can actually govern our own nervous system. So, you know, it's like, it's that shift between I'm at, I'm at the influence of my nervous system and it's driving me and, and, and I'm sort of the skier behind the boat versus now that we understand more about the vagus nerve, um, we, we, we are starting to, to learn that we can influence it. So like just in this moment, if I soften my eyes because the 10th cranial nerve, which is the vagus nerve, um, wires in around the eyes, around the mouth, into the face, right? At the base of the, of the, of the cranium. It's, um, if I soften my eyes, that subtle anatomy, I'm actually sending a message down into my viscera and to the central nervous system that I'm safe, that everything is okay. So we can practice this subtle anatomy that then has a deep impact on how we're wired. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting you say that because it's not just for ourselves, but, you know, we rely on to see yes. other people's yes. faces, which is an <laughs> interesting topic over the last years, the, the hiding of mm. faces and uh, yeah. the idea of there being a cost or some claim no cost to that mm. hiding of the face with some kind of apparatus. And here we are in what's been for many people, the most stressful year of their life for you know obvious reasons. Mm. And we rely on seeing people's faces to yes. regulate our nervous system from these subtle nuanced changes yes. in like how they're holding their eyes or their mm. mouth. Mm -hmm. And there's yeah. all these muscles face. I remember listening. It was a, I think it was one of uh, Gladwell's books. I forget, but it was describing like someone that worked for an FD, FBI that was analyzing mm. facial um, expressions. It kind of is like, a, mm -hmm. I think he was like kind of like a human lie detector mm -hmm. because there were some things that were so involuntary mm -hmm. that, that you could pick up on because there's, you know, all these little muscles we don't think of that move in all these different directions. Yes. And I guess there's patterns that we have when we're like lying or searching for a truth or, and you could like pick up on them, mm -hmm. but there's a lot that we're communicating non-vocally with each yes. other that uh, we were, I guess we're really relying on mm -hmm. that information and anybody could, I mean, if you think about this in an extreme form, it's very easy to wrap your head around. Like if somebody, just had a super evil look on your face, you'd know you would have a response internally to that. Yes. And then if somebody was like, you know, arms open looking for a hug with a ear to ear grin, you'd have a different <laughs> response. So obviously there's yeah. something, there's something to be said that we are affected mm. by the expression of someone else. And we mm -hmm. rely on that oh, for yeah. signals of safety. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we call it co-regulation, right? Co -regulation, and yeah. I mean, the truth is like we're bio-spiritual. 
we're biological beings, right? And some would say we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I think um, Teilhard de Chardin was the first one to, to kind of name that. But um, so we're, we're neurobiologically uh, wired for connection. We're, we're mammals, we're warm-blooded, we're, we're social. Um, and there's been studies that say you know, a, a, a straight face without expression actually triggers terror in the human nervous system. Um, and we do, we, we do rely on each other. So for that co-regulation to, because we're, we're essentially pack animals. I mean, we need, we need each other, you know, all of the sort of the, the, the Polt Gallup, you know, figured out that human beings need four to six hours of human connection, and we would call it human engagement, um, to to feel happy, to feel well, and and Stephen Porge is what he found out. Is that a day? Four to six hours a day. Four to six hours a day, and it can be in a, in the modern world that it can include. Uh, emailing and texting like I text you know one of the only ways my sister will connect is through texting so thank goodness there's texting right so that counts right for like back and forth for 15 minutes that's engagement because you're thinking about someone else you're thinking of yes exactly and in some level you're seeing their face even though you're looking at a screen that's just Print, you know, but and and another thing that's really helpful for the human nervous system is actually emojis, interestingly yeah. enough, no right? Kidding. So, you know, like so when someone does have that, you know, smiley face or a funny face, you get you get a you get a hit from that, right? And so an emotional hit from that. So that actually does kind of take the leveling of engagement the next step further to add that that expression. Um, because we are emotional, emotional beings. But Stephen Porges realized like human engagement is the thing that brings us back into our optimal zone. So I want to go back to what you said about alcohol as a companion, because I think at this stage in, I, I, I think in our modern world, anxiety and depression can feel like a companion for people. Anxiety is very compelling, you know, like the, the nature of the mind is to disperse, right? So like when we step on that yoga mat, like you were saying that beautiful image of like going, shutting the door, looking your mat up and down, stepping. I know that feeling of like looking at my feet and I'm like, everything just sort of comes together. It's almost like um, you've got a sheet of paper and the filaments like fil magnet filaments all over the sheet and you put a magnet under and they all go whoop, right it's like body breath mind whoop, suddenly all in one place and that experience of focus and integration and sync and synchronization between the body the breath and the mind i think is one of the most nourishing experiences of being alive and I wonder I asked myself well why is that and I was trained in the Hakomi method of psychotherapy and one of the things that we were taught over and over is healing happens in the present moment right I mean our best experiences in life when we do like a, a life review it's like when we feel most alive and when we feel most aligned 
lined up in this in this now moment. Yeah, it's hard to, um, you know, I work in a gym as like the day job. Yes. And uh, we always teach like breathing practices first. And, mm. you know, one thing I find myself repeating over the years is it's kind of hard to be anxious or depressed mm. and have mm. your attention on your breath at the same time. So that act of bringing your awareness to your breathing and going mm. inward. Yes. It's hard to be depressed in that moment when you, cause the act of the observation yes. is really this portal into the present moment. It's mm -hmm. the act of observing the right here, right now. Yes. And it's hard to be right here, right now and somewhere else simultaneously. Exactly. Exactly. Les couldn't agree more with you. And that, and that I think more of that, you know, more of that is what's needed. You know, I yeah. actually created a, a yoga group um, in for mental health clinics. Um, so teaching people how to regulate their own nervous systems. And it's the greatest freedom, right? When we realize that we can actually influence and impact our own experience of well of well-being, that 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 the the tools of that are in are in our hands. And one of the first things that I would teach people and what we would start with each group is breath per minute. So how many breaths, you know, it's like, let, I'm gonna turn the timer on and we're all just gonna count the breath. One inhale, one exhale is one breath. It's amazing for some people who are moving so quickly through their day, how stopping, pausing and literally taking, taking a, a minute out, uh, you know, and is like a revolution, right? And, and, and it's wild how time and space expands. <laughs> you know, is it true that we're co-creating with the universe? <laughs> I, I think it is. I think it is true what they say. And so, and so it's like, when we take that, that minute to breathe, we're, time and space literally expands and that minute seems like it's it goes on forever and then that oh my gosh there is this companion right here who who's who is the thing she is the thing that distinguishes me from being dead or alive this breath it's like everything <laughs> And, and then also when we count how many, how many breaths per minute we're taking the high, you know, folks who come in highly anxious, they're going to be like, sorry, they're going to be like between 14 and 17, Whoa, sometimes, sometimes, really? sometimes 21 breaths per minute. So, you know, you've got a clavicle breather there, you know, that person's in a state of hyperactivation. Right. So, so that's the, a lot of breaths. So the antidote, right? Yeah. So do you find that the act of observation alone will create change there? Like if somebody Maybe. just practices counting without mm -hmm. trying to intentionally change it, it, it will just naturally change it and they'll start to slow down. Yes. Yes. It's funny. Like with uh, I talk nutrition with some folks and when folks come in and they're used to eating, like, um, you know, standard American diet-ish processed stuff, easy food. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I always start out with like, don't change anything. Just start reading ingredients. Mm, mm. Don't worry about anything. You don't have to do anything. Just read the ingredients. Yes. And I'm amazed that like the act of observation. Yes. Just bring their awareness. They start to change. Like you don't have to. They're, they start to they see a word they can't pronounce and they're they have and then they think differently about this food. And mm -hmm. so I wonder if just like counting like, oh, I did 17 breaths in a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, the next day you try it, you know, you're you there's something inside you that knows 17 is too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you do something yes. to come up with a better answer with a lower number. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're, I think you're right. That whole, you know, that awareness is the first step to mindfulness and mindfulness really shifts the brain. I, I was reading, you've probably possibly heard this before, but I remember the first time I read this where, why is meditation so important? Why is mindfulness so significant to, to well to well-being? And the way the brain is myelinated, so the, the inner brain, the limbic brain, um, it was myelinated before the, the frontal cortex in human development in early childhood, right? So, so myelination increases the speed at which a synapse travels, okay? So you've got the brain stem as like the the wrist. And then if you fold your thumb for your listeners who are just listening, if you fold your thumb into the middle of your palm, and then you wrap your four fingers over the, the thumb, this comes from um, Dan Siegel. This is, this is a, an image of the brain. So you've got the brain stem is always bringing up sensation from the body in and in the myelination was that that information goes most quickly into the limbic brain, which is the reptilian, which is the fight, flight, freeze part of the brain. And then the myelination of the prefrontal cortex came later. So when we actually, when we slow down and count our breaths, or we step onto the yoga mat, or we sit down onto the meditation cushion, or we enter a space that's cultivated towards deliberateness, we're taking the stimulus, right? So, so the midbrain is going to receive information from the body more quickly. It's also going to receive stimulus from the senses more quickly. So things that we see, smell, hear, taste, and touch through the receptors in our skin. It's so when, when we sit down to meditate, we're actually re- programming those pathways. So we're sitting on a meditation cushion and somebody in the back of the room, maybe we're in a meditation practice and someone in the back of the room drops their water bottle, boom, right? So this sound goes off in the room. If, if we're in a state of mindfulness, we're taking that sound in and we're observing it. And we're going to allow that to kind of ripple through our awareness, breathing in, breathing out. And, and we'll pay attention to that with, with, so, so we take stimulus over time. This is also why practice and repetition is so important is because we're actually rewiring the pathways in our brain so that that stimulus starts to go more 
uh, readily into the frontal cortex versus more immediately into the midbrain. So then with practice of hearing a sound and kind of integrating that interpretation through different parts of the brain, you're training yourself to not freak out when you hear sound. You're training yourself to not freak out. So yes. then like a bigger sound comes, mm -hmm. the, a tree falls in the backyard or whatever, you hear a, a bang, a firework, a gun, and it's like, you're not yes. necessarily tripping the wire because you're practicing integrating the cranial nerve that's bringing sound input yes. into that interpretation center Yes, and into learning. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Into but. the higher executive functioning. So, right, and you think of like any human being who's like excellent at their craft, whether it's like a principal or a doctor, um, you know, or a top trainer at, at the gym or um, uh, an EMT person. It's like those people who, who stay somatically grounded, like they keep, they keep their feet on the ground, something intense happens, but they're able to actually use their perception to, to accurately evaluate, evaluate what's actually happening in the moment versus the story of what's happening in the moment. Gotcha. Right? So is and that what you refer to Rebecca? Sorry to cut you off there. When you mentioned earlier, like mental fitness, fitness. or hygiene, it's mm -hmm. like, it's the flexing of that muscle. It's the practice flexing the muscle of like uh really responding mm -hmm. instead of like reacting yes 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 so mental fitness i think that i've and i'm in the process of writing a book about this uh so there's i talk about it as there's a body component a breath component and a belief component Right. So do you want me to go into that? Yeah. Do your thing. Okay. So the body component is know that you're wired, <laughs> right? Which is this whole vagus nerve. It's the whole polyvagal piece. Like we, we get in our car in the morning and I, we're, we're so not machines. And I think there's a way, and this is, this is helpful. We get into the car in the morning and we turn the ignition on or press the button. We, we are relying on the wiring of that car, but did we look under the hood to like check, check out like, Hey, is everything connected? Is everything firing? Well, like we just automatically assume that everything, everything is good unless we get that little light. Right. But we rely on it. We don't think about the wiring of the car. We just automatically rely on it. And I think it's similar with our bodies is that we, we don't commonly, unless we're mindfulness you know, tracking that specifically, we don't automatically think about our wiring. There's the no morning. check engine light. There's no check engine light, except anxiety. Panic right. is, is a check engine light for right. sure. Um, depression, right? And so I think that's why tracking the nervous system is so helpful and so critical in mental health and tracking our own mental health. And so, you know, know that we're wired, know that you're wired is the starting point where you're like, look at the ingredients of that you know, particular product. It starts with awareness. Awareness is the gateway to into mindfulness. And mindfulness is really the the thing that is the companion, like the breath that determines how we do our day. So know that you're wired. Um, 
and then know how you're wired. So some of us are wired to go into high states of hyperactivation more quickly. And some of us are wired to go hypo. And would that be like uh, comparing like fight or freeze? Freeze. Freeze can happen in hyper or hypo states. Okay. Freeze when we when there's panic, we can freeze, right? So um, it's not necessarily it's, this. Okay. It's not necessarily. You can go fight, flight, freeze in either of those directions. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the ventral vagal state of the nervous system is when we're in the optimal zone, when we're, we're sailing our little boat in the water and we can go with the waves, the wind, all of that kind of stay on course, no matter what comes our way. Um, sympathetic is related to the, the, the fight flight. So it's more related to the limbic brain, right? If, if, and it's really, my understanding is when we have enough human engagement and it's healthy human engagement, we're going to stay in our optimal zone in a, in a way better way. When we are not getting our social engagement needs met, then we'll start to, to most commonly go into a state of hyperactivation. And I actually think of things as like gossiping even is, is a sign is a, is a mild sign that, that we're feeling disconnected. Hmm. And so it's almost like gossip is, is an unhealthy way to try and reconnect. It's, it's kind of unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. But, but it's, it's a, it's the beginning of a fight gossip, right? So, right. So it's, it's interesting how, how subtle these things can get. And, Hmm. and really when someone is fighting um, or all the way up into a rage, you got to know that if you look into that person's nervous system, they're really longing for connection and soothing, but it's an unhealthy um, strategy to get a, an engagement need met, a social engagement need met. That makes sense. That's cool. And then if that doesn't work, what we'll do is we'll kind of evolutionarily slide back towards a more primitive form of engagement, which we call the dorsal ventral, which is the, the fold, freeze, feign death, which we associate with depression. If you think about it from a social engagement perspective, it's like, I tried all these things to connect or to relate or to feel included and they didn't work. And so I'm going I'm going to collapse in on myself. And in each of these plate, you know, these three kind of categories of the optimal zone, hyperactivated or hypoactivated, it's obviously more complex than that, but that door sliding down to dorsal, it's the most primitive response in the nervous system is to feign death. And the belief there is I don't exist and the world doesn't exist. And we see this a lot in teenagers, right? Young people and not just young people, but we're seeing, I think we're, I think we're in the middle of the biggest mental health crisis in human history. Um, And, you know, I think we see a lot of young people in these, in these states of collapse and what that, if we look through the lens of the nervous system at what is that human being needing they're needing 
connection, usually they're needing um, movement. So stimulus into the nervous system, they're needing their cup to be filled. Right. Do you think social media plays a big role in that them that more and more people will go inward and feel maybe unseen or unconnected, even though it's a version of connection? It's a ver yeah. Facebook will never replace face face to face time, um, right? Um, because yeah, they're growing up with mm -hmm. this right these this type of like sensory input mm -hmm. in high doses mm -hmm. day in and day out, which yeah. could make you feel like you're just one in a, you know. There's a bajillion people out there and you're yes because you see how many is out there as opposed to mm. like when we grew up mm. you know you saw the 20 kids in your class and you knew your grade had another 100 kids maybe and it was like mm. you didn't see a whole lot more but now they see there's like uh, a sea of people and it's like how could i be seen how mm. it can make you feel small relatively Mm-hmm. Well, maybe just yeah, thinking out loud. Absolutely. Well, I think you're, you know, in a functional cosmology, we have a functional human culture. And in a functional human culture, we have a functional public health. And in a function functional public health, we have functional individuals. So I think largely what you're speaking to is like we're we we can't human beings cannot be replaced with machines or screens. And when we, when human beings relate more to a screen or a machine than other human beings, we're not getting, so we're not getting that deep, we're not co-regulating, you know? So it, it, it people need people. Right. <laughs> we, we, need, we need each other um, to be sane. We need it for sanity's sake. Um, and so I think what you're speaking to is, it is a massive breakdown of social emotional needs. Like, you know. So is that why I noticed you offer like retreat style healing? Yes. So is the idea of that to tap into that, I guess, tribal nature, like the, the group needs that we have? Is that, is that more successful for people to go through like healing processes in a group together as opposed to one-on-one -on -one or or by okay. themselves obviously yeah i mean there's definitely a place for one-on-one -on -one, um work and i do i do a lot of that with people when we work in a group absolutely people realize they're not alone that's the biggest thing i think that's number one is to realize you're not alone um, shared humanity is a huge part of we need to know that we're connected and to see other people struggling you know actually helps us feel better to realize that we're not alone we're not um we're not experiencing something that someone in the past hasn't hasn't experienced you know that kind right. of understanding that this is actually normal in the human condition and and normal in the face of abnormal situations right this is a normal response to an unprecedented kind of experience so 
people need to, that comfort. It takes the stress level down so that then you can just be with your, your experience. And in groups, there is a collective learning. That's why we learn in groups. Um, the human brain is again, wired towards engagement or neurobiologically wired to connect. So it actually is a function of, of learning as well. And, and so, yeah, when people feel less alone, then the stress level goes down enough to be able to tolerate what they're going through more, more easily. Gotcha. I have um, some questions. So I, I want to get like the, the 101 lesson of EMDR, <laughs> sure, but sure. I, I want to ask one other thing first. You alluded to a word earlier, and I've heard this word thrown around um, over the years, but I don't know if I've really got clarity of what it means, but the word somatic, hmm. what is that? Uh, yeah. How would you describe what that is referring to? Sure. Well, so it comes from the word soma, which means body. Um, and the biologists tell us that cellular biologists tell us that our cells are either turned on or they're turned off. It's not totally my wheelhouse. So I, you know, someone else would have to explain that more, but my experience of it is embodiment practice. So going out for a walk, doing yoga, martial arts, Tai Chi, um, you know, the more that we move in our bodies, especially when we're paying attention to what we're doing, right? So we're synchronizing the body and the mind, more and more of that cellularity turns on, right? So like, I just got a bed of nails, right? <laughs> I was listening to Tim Ferriss. He was talking about the bed of nails. It's this acupuncture mat, right? Do you know it? Oh, okay. I have a right? similar one. Yeah. Right. The acupuncture mat. So you stand on that thing and it's like, right? Your whole right. everything, your whole right. physiology just lights up, but also your brain lights up. Oh, so you stand on it. I have one that you lay down on your back with it. Yeah, you can do that, but you can also just stand. I've up, never considered up. standing on it. <laughs> Consider it. Well, I know what I'm doing after this interview. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. And then pay attention. I mean, that's the best thing about, about having awareness is that we get to, it's like a lighthouse where we're putting that light you know, determines what we see. So we get to turn that and then pay attention to how that impacts you. So there's, in my experience, um, you know, the more embodied I am, the more awake I feel, the more alert, right? So somatic is turning those cells on, having practices that, that turn your cells on and then turn your brain on. So in EMDR, we do bilateral stimulation. We actually stimulate the right and left hemisphere of the brain and we get them to have a conversation, you know, so that that back and forth is happening. Um, and then, then we're starting to play with a full deck. <laughs> So bilateral stimulation. So is that with eye movements? Yeah. So EMDR 101. So let's get into this. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. Um, so to talk about EMDR, let's first quickly briefly talk about trauma. Trauma is either developmental or sort of more circumstantial. So Developmental trauma would be um, things that happen in early childhood that happen repeatedly and we create something core called core beliefs. Those core beliefs get, get determined be, usually between the age of you know three and five. So we actually have life experience and we make up 
um, stories about what those life experiences mean, but we make them up before the neocortex has even developed. So we don't actually know we've done it. So it feels, it's like, that's why there's just this automatic sort of, we call it, you know, unconscious until it's conscious. So usually, right. So I'm not enough or the world isn't safe. Right. Um, so core beliefs and then our physiology also wires in with the people we grow up with. So if we grow up with a particularly anxious mother, we're going to most likely, you know, have a little more proclivity towards anxiety. There's a lot that goes into that. That would be probably for another time, but um, you know, so there's how we're wired and then there's the beliefs, the core beliefs in there. That you said three to five, is that, that's like a sweet spot. What I've heard, mm -hmm. I've heard stories of people being traumatized, like even at birth, like being born yes, with the, sure. uh, the cord wrapped <laughs> around their neck. Like, do you think even something like that, where it's a really stressful, I don't know, 10 minutes, whatever it is till they cut the thing off. Like, can that trigger something that develops into a belief? Oh my gosh. Age. Yes. It's, it's actually, yeah. From you, from being in the uterus to, um, yeah, to about five, five up to seven. So yeah, from, from some people even say from conception, right. So, but things that are happening while you're growing in your mama's belly, absolutely. Those things are imprinting into your nervous system. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My mother said that when she was pregnant, she would you know, eat ice cream to calm the baby down, the bowl, the cold bowl sitting on her belly. Hmm. I wonder what a fetus thinks about that, how that affects, like, uh -huh. why is this lady freezing me out? Huh. Interesting. <laughs> and, and what went through my mind was the sugar, right? So oh, obviously. Yeah. Right? Well, that, yeah, I don't, back piece. then, that generation, they didn't know much about uh, nutrition and its relationship yes. to physiology. Yes, exactly. But, um, so yeah. three to five, it really, that really resonates with me because that's the age I was when I remember seeing my dad with a suitcase mm. walking out of the house mm -hmm. and not understanding what's going on. Yeah. And I remember, and it wasn't until, it really wasn't until I quit drinking mm. until memories started coming up of like yes. witnessing that and being able to see myself there like as an adult kind of watching look at that little four-year-old boy on the doorstep mm -hmm. not understanding why his father's leaving mm -hmm. with a suitcase mm -hmm. and um and then like now i know because i've done a lot of work and i think i still have a good amount of work to do and i and it really manifests in my relationship with them like uh i can have an argument with my mother and like the second the phone call ends there's like nothing lingering. Like there's no doubt in my mm. mind. She loves me unconditionally. I love her. Like we mm. disagree all the time and it doesn't really matter. Mm. It, the relationship seems to be unpenetrable in some way. And then like, if I have a fight with my father, it's like, uh, it's a crazy type of stress mm. that goes on for a long time and mm. takes a lot of uh, work to address but the belief system is very interesting because it wasn't until you know I quit drinking where I could look at that and say mm -hmm. oh I could see that him leaving 
made me think not consciously, like you said, because your yeah. prefrontal cortex isn't developed, Correct. Correct. That, it, but the subconscious is like, I'm not worthy of his love. I'm not worthy of him sticking around. I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. And then like that belief gets built in and then it could show up and be manifested in all other aspects of your life. And then in your behaviors, like if you don't think you're worthy of you're good enough for whatever, good health, whatever, like you'll find reasons Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, make your life worse Mm -hmm. so that you kind of get what you are worthy of. Yeah. Or what your subconscious thinks you're worthy of, which is not enough. Yes, We're wired to win. (laughs) We're wired to win. So if, if, if we, if our, if we're, if we're letting our core belief drive the bus, then that's, what's going to win. What the belief that's driving the bus is going to win the day, right? We're wired to win. So that's interesting, right? So find a way to win, even though you're going to so dysfunctional exactly, exactly progress or growth or health. Yep. Wow. So how do the eyes, how do the, so EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization, you say it, mm-hmm, I forget. Mm-hmm. Yep. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And reprocessing. Yep. So. Mm-hmm. And this is because the eyes somehow have like a, just a direct line into this part of the brain. Yes. So fascinatingly, right? So the ocular nerves wire into the hemispheres of the brain. So the right eye, they crisscross, which is part of the reason the eye movement is so essential because we actually want to get, so the part of the brain that links the right and left hemispheres called the corpus callosum. And we actually want to get a lot of activity. We want to really massage that part of the brain and get it lit up and get those pathways open and running. So, because we want the conversation to happen and be equally distributed between the two hemispheres. So I, EMDR 101 is like, okay, we want the two hemispheres of the brain to play tennis. When we have had a traumatic experience the right hemisphere tends to get overly engaged. The right hemisphere is connected more with emotions. It's also connected more with negative negative thoughts. Uh, And it's kind of more of the the artist brain, sorry to link negative thoughts and artist brain. That's <laughs> those aren't necessarily connected, but it's, it's kind of the storyteller, right. In the sense, um, in that sense, the left brain is the quote unquote rational brain. It's more of the scientist. It's the more, more of the one that makes sense of things and puts the pieces together. Um, the, the right hemisphere could take a little snippet of experience and make this huge story about it. So we actually want to link that capacity with what actually happened with the more kind of regulated, measured understanding, the left hemisphere, which the left hemisphere brings. The left hemisphere is also more connected to positive mental states. So what we're doing with EMDR and the eye movement, or rather the bilateral movement, talk about that in a sec, 
is to actually get the two hemispheres of the brain to play tennis. When we're in trauma, it's like the right hemisphere is up against a wall going bloop, bloop, bloop. And that ball is like, it's just a loop. It creates like a cognitive loop. We have common thoughts that just sort of keep you know, looping or sensations, experiences, or triggers, right? We go instantly into a shutdown or a fight trigger response. What with EMDR is we slow things down and we actually go right. Once, once I get like, there's five pieces, five to seven pieces of information I need to know about your history. And then in order to process a memory. So we do, what did you make that mean? The dad left the suitcase. What did you make it mean about you? You know, it's probably, what would you say? Oh, in that case, I think looking back, I think it, I, I meant that to mean I'm on some level, either I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy of his love. Like yeah. if I was worthy, then he'd stick around kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And that's the other thing. And now, doing. like, I know it wasn't about me at all, but yeah, at four right. years old, you don't know it's not about you. At four years old, you're completely self-referencing. Everything's about you at that age. Right. right? I mean, right. it just is. And so that's another reason all these things kind of slip into the city of core beliefs without our even knowing it. It's where it's, we, we can't, we're, we can't help it. We're a sponge. And so I'm not worthy of love. What would you prefer to believe? There's our North star. Hmm. Right. What would you prefer to believe? Um, I guess that I am worthy of, mm -hmm. of love, unconditional love. Yeah. 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 And when you think of that image of seeing your dad with the suitcase and that thought, I'm, I am worthy of love. How true does that feel in this moment? Right. Zero. It feels good to say that. It's interesting. I probably should say that out loud more because I'm not yeah. prompted like that. Mm -hmm. Like you just mm -hmm. prompted me and it, uh, it's a reminder of like the value of an affirmation or something like, oh, saying these things yes. out loud. Like yes. I could feel my chemistry and my body change for the better. Beautiful. Just by saying yes. that. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. So you made, you made your way over to the left brain. Okay. So I took, uh, emotional deep embedded emotional thing and i applied like kind of like a logical thinking to it from the left brain to reshape mm -hmm. it yeah positively like positively an affirmation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah yep. a preferred cognition so you have the first thing is the belief that you what belief did you have the second thing is the north star what belief do you want to have mm -hmm. and then what's next yeah and then when you think of the image of your dad with the suitcase and the thought I'm not worthy of love, what emotion comes up? That's a tough one. What emotion? I don't know. Give me a list of options. What are <laughs> emotions? Um, Con confusion. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. That, you know, you're right. I Fear. remember confused. Like I didn't understand what was, didn't mm -hmm. make sense. Perplexing. Yeah. yeah. Confusion yeah. is a good one. Yeah. And then where, and then, and then how bad is it now? Which is a huge, this is one of the ways we measure in EMDR. 
is like, not how bad was it then, but how distressing is it to you now, zero to 10? When you make yourself think of it. When I think of like being back then, or as right, I right in this right in this, this moment, moment, as you touch that confusion, hmm. zero, no distress, ten, the most you've ever felt. What do you get right now? Yeah, it doesn't bother me now. I'm not confused about mm-hmm. why, because yeah. now I know like this was his shit or the shit between him and my mother, and that was like a toxic relationship. Yeah, like, I didn't make it toxic. They That's made it. Right. Yeah, you know, they right. were showing up in the world the only way they knew how and they had shitty mm-hmm. tool set to work with each other. Right. So like, yeah, I don't get confused when I think of are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't bother me at all. OK, good. So and usually people have like two or three emotions that a, an experience like that will will regularly trigger or 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 even subtly. Right. So. Yeah, so we would access that emotion. How intense is it now and where do you feel it in your body? So you can see that from that less, we're accessing memory, right? Mm-hmm. With that image, we're accessing um, the cognitive aspect because human beings are meaning-making beings. So we have an experience, we make a meaning of it. We wanna know what that meaning is because that's where we're getting like, we get pulled in. That's the unconscious kind of loop that like you said, can color one's whole life, right? So really, really important. And what would you prefer to believe the North Star? And then we can see we're accessing emotion and where it lives in the body. So that's what I love about EMDR is that we're actually getting at all the different aspects of, of how we're wired and who and how we be as beings. We, we would then, um, and there's a lot of prep work and, you know, we don't really suggest people do this on their own. However, there's practices that you can do on your own, but then we, once I've given you enough tools, so there's an on-ramp to EMDR therapy, there's tools that you would get that I would teach, that I teach you. And then if that was, you know, one of the, we, we start with that memory, um, we engage the eye movement so that kind of in a very sort of easy, simple way to put it, because my understanding is still evolving of exactly how this works, but we're getting the emotional brain and the rational brain to, to, to talk to each other. We're getting them to play tennis so that the ball goes over the net, the corpus callosum into the rational brain's court. And then the rational brain throws it back over the net. Like, oh, but do you remember... So one of my first times practicing this, when I was training in EMDR, I worked with a fellow clinician who could write, cause we're all clinicians in this EMDR training. And he offered a memory from when he was nine and his mom made him do like tuba practice at this church after school. And he was super ticked off about it still at 40 something years old. And he had, this longing to be a musician and but he had this huge like uh somatic physical visceral response of aversion to seeing any musical sheets or um, instruments or even contemplating hiring a teacher so here's this here's this sort of this is how we get stuck is we have this longing right? He had this longing towards wind instruments, even at 42 years old. 
but at the same time he had this, so he had this like gas pedal, but then he had this brake pedal at the same time, right? That's how we get stuck, right? And so, and I think it interrupts a lot of human genius, this, this thing, right? So this is one part of my passion is where, where, you, where do you want to head? So we get in there into this memory and his emotional brain is like, I'm pissed at my mom. I, every time I look at music sheets, I want to vomit. Like I have this visceral response and I, I keep putting down my longing to study. Okay. We get in there. We start. So that's the emotional brain. We throw the tennis ball over to the rational brain. You know, it takes a little time to get warmed up. We get warmed up and he's like, oh my God, I totally forgot my dad died like the year before. Not that I forgot my dad died, but I'm just remembering the relationship. My, well, here, here it is. Here it rolls out. My poor mom is suddenly a single parent and she needs somewhere for me to go after school because she's working. So she picks this church down the street from our house so that the bus can drop me off at my house. I can walk to go have this lesson. And when I'm done, she's home from work and we have dinner. He like, see that? See how getting the ball to go over the net into the right. rational brain, he's like, I completely forgot about that. And now that I'm 42 and I have more myelination in my brain for one thing, I mean, and lots of lived experience, he, he could pull from what actually happened. That's cool he could pull from the, what was actually going on in her world and in, in life at that moment. And here's what happens less that I see all the time, which I have goosebumps right now, is the sort of spiritual aspect, or I don't know what you wanna call it, but the sacred aspect of life comes online. All of a sudden, here's this 42 year old man who's such a lovely person and has been so hung up about this on multiple levels. And all of a sudden he's now in a state of compassion. Yeah. That's the word that was coming to me. You could start to see, mm -hmm. you could start to ask like, what is it like for that person? What? And, yes. then, and then it's like, uh, you know, anger could just dissipate or yes. You know, whatever fear is coming yes. from that. That's interesting. So the bilateral work, when we're in person, we would do eye movement. That's the, that's, that's the way, that's the modality that's been researched the most. Since COVID, I've been working online with people using sound. Oh, cool. You can even, they'll even shut their eyes. You can see their eyes moving, right? So there's bilateral music that has been created for this work that it also triggers you know, the brain. You mean where the sound's going from back and forth from the right ear to the left ear? Correct. It's like usually happening in both ears, but then there's a layer of the sound that's toggling back and forth. Oh, interesting. You can also, you know, there's a butterfly hug. You can, you can tap the, so if I tap the left side of my body, the, my right hemisphere is getting pinged. Light up, light up, light up. Mm engage it's interesting we had a nutritious on, nutritionist on recently mary ruddock and um she gave me like a bunch of homework 
And I was surprised. It was a very comprehensive like package. She said, you know, do this, don't do that. And in it, it was like limbic brain training section. It was like, and it, she was telling me to do things with my non-dominant hand. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I've been like looking for things to do. Mm. Like I'll do like uh, sometimes dry brushing and I realize I'm always using my dominant. So, and I yeah. feel really awkward, especially at first yes. I'm getting better yes. using the other, but there's something yes. soothing about it or yes. brushing my teeth with my non-dominant hand or like I'll skateboard with my son. Mm. And uh, uh, for those that aren't familiar, when you skateboard, you have like your, what, the direction that feels comfortable. So most people will skate with the right foot in the back. There's some that skate like goofy, which is the other. Yes. But when you go opposite to what yes. they call it switch. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm terrible, I'm a terrible skateboarder in general, for almost 44 years old. Uh, but, um, but when I skate, switch hmm. it's very hard for me to just even stay on the board it takes yes. like every bit of concentration but there's something about it that's like calming mm -hmm. when i'm done i'm not mm -hmm. calm when i'm on the board mm -hmm. but it, it, i think it's related to this like switching to different mm -hmm. sides of the brain mm -hmm. so how do, so what's an example of so first you do like the um you go through the talk part of this process yes. to identify, you know, what's underneath the rug, kind of what's the what's goal over the trauma wall. Yeah. Yep. And then, and then you move into like application of using your senses to help facilitate this, like with, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. the tapping the ear, the sounds you're talking about, or the eye movements, like what, what's an example of the eye movements that you use to help facilitate the, the healing or the process what's an example of the eye movement like yeah um it's pretty straightforward yeah so if we were in person i would literally move my my fingers across it's sort of oh. like a windshield wiper okay but, so you're but just making your be... eyes go back and forth kind of like yes. you're watching that tennis game and that's how um that's how uh francine shapiro discovered emdr in the 80s she was walking down the beach on the, the Western coast of the US. She's passed on now, but she's a brilliant person. And she was processing something from her day and she was looking to the right and looking to the left. And she realized over time that she started to feel better. And she was like, what, what did I just do? Right, there's reflection for you. She went up into her neocortex, right? Like, what did I just do? Oh. I, I remember looking to the right and look and looking to the left and kind of going back and forth. And so she had a, a dear friend who was linked to some local uh, university and they set up a trial experiment like, hey, it, well, she actually went home. I think she was living in a community house. She told some of her friends like, hey, can you try this? And they were like, yeah, I'm, I see what you're talking about. Like something's shifting here, right? It's literally digesting. We're literally digesting input. And when there's stress in a human life, one of the first casualties is sleep. And our basically EMDR on one level is mimicking REM sleep. The rapid eye movement. 
So that's when I, you know, in my business, I, I say, I partner with nature. That's what I mean. It's like our nervous systems are designed to process and digest daily stimulus. Now we live in the 21st century. So daily stimulus, we're not at human speed to quote, quote, Laura Brazil, right? Mm. Like, right. Human speed. We are not at human speed right now. We're at machine speed. And so we are constantly barraged with stimulus. So overstimulation is another way to talk about uh, anxiety, <laughs> right? right? Where there's too much going on. So, and then throw that overstimulation in with being super sedentary and the body is freaking out. Like, what do I do with all this stuff? that's why movement mindfulness that's why i'm so psyched to be talking to you right like it's like that that's why these things are our allies in as an antidote to all of the 21st century stimulus that we're being asked to to kind of figure out how to work with on a moment-to-moment daily basis when we sleep you know, so I think REM sleep even isn't enough to handle all of that. That's why movement is so Well, important. nobody gets enough of it. So. And nobody gets enough of it. And it's the first casualty that goes when we're stressed. And it is the nervous system's natural way of di- literally digesting stimulus and input, or, or we could say experience. There's like texts, phone calls. And then if you've got like a recent loss, like a spouse dies or a child passes or, um, you know, or you're, or you're in a job that every Monday morning you kind of, you don't like your work culture. And then all of a sudden you go from your life to a context where there's a stress that, you know, just really turns you off or jacks you up, right? So then you add those layers and then it's really hard to digest, um, right? right? So EMDR, I see it as a way of re- hitting the reset button on the nervous system so that, so that individual can start reprocessing. So we desensitize the stress around a particular experience. So then we reprocess it. We go back in there. We, you know, like with the example of the colleague I was working with, mm-hmm. you know, in the music lessons, like he went back in there and, and, and he, he was like, oh, he suddenly had compassion for the music teacher. Like, oh, he was doing the best he could. I was a nine-year-old kid who didn't really want to play the tuba. Um, and he had, you know, he stood reprocessing to me is like, you stand in a different relationship to that memory. Now it's not like it gets erased. That memory is still there, but it's not triggering the hyper hypo anxiety pattern. It's really, you're altering your relationship with yourself. And with history, (laughs) which is profound. I mean, that just blows my mind. Like, you know, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. Right. We start in EMDR. Well, what, what scores do we have here? What's, we take an inventory. What's over that trauma loss list? 
what number you got, zero to 10 on those, you know, what's bugging you the most. And we can actually, in present time, go back in time with one foot, and we call it dual state awareness. There's one foot in the present moment. So we're resourced at least enough. You know, we got to be resourced enough and one foot in the past. And it's like, again, we're toggling. I always talk about it as like, okay, your current self, you know, you know, now you're a dad, I think, right? You mentioned yeah. your son, you know, you can, you know, and you're 44, you got all of these skills and tools that you didn't have when you were that four-year-old. And you actually, dirt while the bilateral work is going on in your brain, you actually get to pass some of that nutrient back, some of those resources back to that little one. We call it corrective experience. And I think this is a fascinating thing, you know, in the human brain and nervous system is like we can, and our beings, we can actually go back and, and make up some of that difference. And, and you, do you mean like, yeah. see, like in my case, like visualizing my four-year-old self, the inner child, whatever, and like communicating like this is like, uh, this isn't about you. Like I have one foot here with today's resources like today's ability to interpret what actually happened and try to convey that to that inner child in a way. But one thing I want to say about this less is that we can't think our way to health, right? So, so yes, like affirmations and visualizations help. And when we engage at the level of the nervous system, so with in addition to the bilateral work. So, so, and, and after 20 minutes of working, the brain becomes even more receptive. You, you start to time and space starts to shift when you're inside of an EMDR session. So it's kind of like you enter in a slightly altered state. It's from within that state, you're able to then give something to that one who wasn't given what they were needed at the time. Gotcha. So and it sounds like a, like kind of like hypnosis. You're going to a uh, I don't altered know. state or. Yeah. No. I mean, it's different. A, that's not really my wheelhouse. It, it is different. It is different. Um, <clears throat> I guess there's a lot of ways to uh, slip into an altered state of consciousness where you could reframe mm -hmm. things or take yeah. different approaches. Yes. And it's from inside of that memory. So it's like in a therapeutic session, when we get inside of that memory and you're not there alone, part of the reason something is traumatic is that it was too much too soon or too fast. And there wasn't the support to give what was needed at the time. Right. From, from like, there wasn't, you know, if, um, yeah, there just there there was something more that was needed that wasn't given from the the environment, and so we're able to to do to do have a do over. Gotcha. And the brain then catches up, right? So some part of the brain doesn't know was that then or is that now, right? And so what happens is that then actually all the limbic firing around that early childhood memory gets freed up 
it actually gets desensitized so that that neurophysiological pathway kind of it's like that extension is no longer available you know <laughs> sort of right right and, and so the all the energy it takes to manage that like you said when so bravely so bravely when you stop drinking that memory came up right it's like so painful you know that the, there's a healthy impulse in wanting to numb all right <laughs> Right. And so well, it wasn't painful. It was more like, oh, look what I was soothing. I didn't even realize I exactly, knew I was soothing that. Exactly. And that so it takes that, you know, can take that sobriety to allow that to, to come up. And then it's in your conscious awareness. Then you actually can work with it directly. Right. right. You can you can actually turn and face that and integrate it. Something about how it happened or the way it happened was too much to integrate in the moment. The mm. things we integrate in the moment, we don't even remember, or we remember with a neutrality or we remember with a pos a positivity, right? But if there's something still hanging on, it's just not yet integrated. But the, that's the, that's the most amazing thing about this practice is that we can actually do that now. That's and awesome. Then, and then like next time your dad calls, you'll be like, whoa, hey, oh my gosh. I mean, it's wild. Like the 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 way something can go from like hot and fiery to like that just really doesn't hook me anymore. <clears throat> and and it's somatic. It happens on the level of the body. Like and all the cells are listening to all, all this. The, if we're lucky, yeah. If, <laughs> you know, if we have a good therapeutic relationship, that that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, there's enough safety in a person's life in the moment, um, you know, and that there's, we, we, AIP, we tap into the, the, the healthy neural network that's already there. We tap into the health that's already there. And then we bring that thing that was sort of an estranged memory or an unintegrated experience. And we bring it, we get to bring that into that healthy network. It is now, it's now integrated into the, into the healthy network of, of our, of our neurology. And so it just doesn't play out anymore. That is uh, exciting. I think as someone that tries to, I guess, inspire people. I mean, we say this a lot on this channel, but try to empower people to play a bigger role in their well-being. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we have all these tools to choose from and yes. maybe there's more than one tool you could use for a given Absolutely. thing, but it's nice to have tools. And then as you practice, you sharpen those tools. And this sounds like a really cool, mm. useful tool that we could yes. tap into. And I, I think everybody has some shit from their past <laughs> to deal with. Like we all have our own type of suffering, trauma, and it's all real. And, you know, some people, will, I guess we'll talk about how one sounds subjectively mm. worse than another. Mm -hmm. And but really, you know, everybody's biggest trauma is their biggest trauma, even mm -hmm. if it might sound really kind of like a first world problem to to some people, mm. like to that person, that's their biggest trauma. So mm. your biggest trauma is the 100 percent level for you. And it could be, you know, a, wi it, a wide range of things. It could just mm -hmm. 
you know, having this real low level of stress that happened over time, or mm -hmm. it could be, you know, something very acute that, that happened. Absolutely. Um, that's great. I want to thank you so much. I did not expect to talk about some of my own stuff on this, but um, I'm glad it did. It felt good. And I appreciate you, Rebecca, for walking me through that. That was unexpected. And these are things that I have talked about with Sarah before and a therapist to some degree, and really myself a lot, you know, through meditation and um, breath work, and sometimes even with some some added helpers in as far as compounds that kind of helped me along with that. Sure. And uh, it's a little terrifying to say this when I know listeners are going to hear, but it feels good. So I thank you for that. Mm. I think that practice of vulnerability is very healthy and we need more of it in the world. So I'm uh, glad to play my role in that. And I, and I'm grateful that you kind of uh, very in a very peaceful way, drag that out of me. That was painless. <laughs> um, if people want to learn more about working with you one-on-one -on -one or your retreats or what you have to offer, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. Thanks for asking, Les. Uh, StrongSolutionsBoulder.com. StrongSolutionsBoulder.com. And we will yeah. link to that in the show notes. Great. Great. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for your courage um, and you know, I think that's the biggest thing, like for any of your listeners who are listening to this, like there is effective, efficient support. You know, we really do get to kind of put down those things that we've, and, and you're right, everyone has, has them. And there's, there's an individual component and there's a collective component, right? So, um, there's in, we don't have to suffer, Right. We don't have to keep suffering. And but but it does take being vulnerable and saying, hey, this is going on. There's a quote that I love that's anonymous. We cannot be human alone. Mm. Right. So it's like when we reach out and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help? You know, and to keep and to persevere until you find love. Right. You find a context where there's love, because in love, when there's love, we can learn because we feel safe. And that safety lets our guard down enough to go in there and 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 really look at what's going on and to be honest with ourselves like this thing is hanging me up and okay and i'm ready I'm safe enough i'm ready let's work this through and i can actually get beyond it we can actually stand on the ground of health again because we're designed for that individually and collectively so yeah I welcome people to Boulder to come do an intensive with me. And I would um, like to do that one time. It's one place that I haven't been that I just know I would love from what yes. I hear. It just sounds beautiful. And uh, it sounds like it goes a little bit more at human speed. Yes. There than where I live. So um, uh, my, my daughter is going off to college in a couple months. And I think uh, we're going to look for opportunities to see a little bit more of the country. And that's definitely mm -hmm. a, a spot that we would like to check out. So if we do, we will, we will definitely stop by. That's say great, hello. Les. I'd love it. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you again. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners, listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. I hope you got some value out of this episode. And uh, just stay tuned for the next one. Have a great day, everyone.
Thank you. Well, folks, thanks again for tuning in and listening to that conversation. I hope you got something out of that conversation. I know that I did. Rebecca was a delight to talk to. When I was talking to her, I felt like really that there was no one else going to listen and it was just me and her in a room. And I guess that's what we look for when we're in relationship with somebody and talking face to face, even if it is through Zoom. Um, I got to tell you, just a reminder, saying the things I did today has been really good for me. So. I would encourage the listeners maybe to look at your own life a little bit, maybe with some curiosity of what might be available for you if you are willing to not just look inward, but bring what's held inward more to the surface and put it out there so you could work through it and build a healthier relationship with yourself and then let those benefits disperse and translate in other areas of your life. Thanks again for tuning in. And if you don't mind sharing the episode, if you think you know someone in your life that would also find value in it. And if you're looking for ways to support the mindful movement, then check out our membership program. It's getting some upgrades right around the corner. So we're excited about that. And you could join us, I think actually, If this is aired when I think it is, then the day after you're hearing this, maybe we will have one of our live membership events. So if you sign up today or in time, you could join this month's live event. They're a lot of fun. We get together essentially through Zoom with other mindful uh, mindful movement members around the world, and we hang out together and and do the practice. You know, we do some, some intention setting, Sarah usually does a reading, we'll do some light movement, we'll do some light breath work, and then we finish with a guided meditation by Sarah. I always feel good after those, and it's fun to know that others are joining along at the same time, so I encourage you to check it out. Thanks again, I hope you have a great day.